<laughs> a couple weeks ago, we began a new teaching series called The Gospel and the Story of God. And it's been a beautiful time. I hope it's been enlightening for you as a follower of the way of Jesus and for our community uh, as we seek to have a greater understanding and awareness of what the gospel is according to the scriptures and according to um, the writers of the New Testament. And also, with that being said, um, this past Wednesday, a lot of you all probably recognize this or noticed this, but a handful of people had ash crosses on their forehead. Uh, And that's because this past Wednesday was known as Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of the Lenten season in the Universal Church calendar, which is the 40-day kind of journey leading up to Easter, leading up to Easter weekend. And it's this idea that we embrace the brokenness of our humanity and cling to the hope of the cross that is before us. That is the Lent meaning. That is the idea of Lent. And for a lot of people, it is a season of fasting. Uh, Now, some of you are like, we just came out of 21 days of prayer and fasting. I ain't doing that again for the rest of the year. Um, But it is a season where we intentionally give up something in order to be filled with the presence of God, journeying together as a community towards the cross. And so uh, with that being said, let me just pray for us this morning as we jump into the scriptures and continue this teaching series. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we are so thankful for who you are, for your grace, for your mercy, for being in our midst. We thank you for the season that we get a chance to partake in as a community. This moment that we find ourselves in that embeds us into the story of God, into the gospel of Jesus. This 40-day journey that we are embarking on as a global church leading up to this Easter moment where you are crucified on the cross on a Friday, enter into the grave and there is silence on Saturday. And then ultimately that moment of joy on Sunday morning. name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and hop into your Bible, John chapter 1. Go ahead, hop there quickly on your phone or your physical copy of the scriptures. And understand this, when we read the scriptures, which means sacred writing, by the way, and by the way, look, let me explain something to you. Um, We having technical difficulties with the TV right now, apparently, and we're just going to roll with it, all right? And I got a lot of slides today, so the enemy's really coming after me, because um, we got a lot to get through this morning. But anyway, John chapter 1, this is the Holy Scriptures, and I want you to understand this, that when we approach the sacred writings called the Scriptures, we approach them not seeking so much information as transformation. That is how we approach the text called the Scriptures. We approach it seeking to be formed and shaped and molded through what Scott McKnight calls Christoformity or being formed to live and look like Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, And when we don't zoom out and gain a 30,000-foot perspective on what is happening inside and outside of the Scriptures, we often miss out on the larger point. 
How many of you have seen the meme before with the elephant, the elephant cartoon, and there's all these people around the elephant. Some are touching the side, some are touching the trunk, and some are saying, ooh, it's a hose, or ooh, it's a wall, when in reality, you see far enough back and go, actually, it's an elephant. That is how we approach the scriptures, understanding the gospel and the story of God from this 30,000-foot perspective. And so sometimes we don't zoom out, we miss out on the larger point of the story. And the gospel, as we've defined, is a saving or redemptive story of King Jesus or Lord Jesus. It is based on events that radically shape the course of history. Radically shape the course of history. There are four main parts of the God story following a, a traditional literary arc. Those four parts are creation, fall, rede- praise the Lord in Jesus' name. Let it be. Y'all know how excited I am. I have paradigms and all kinds of visuals today. So um, just excited about that. The four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We've already gone through creation. Last week, Stephen touched on fall. Today, we look at redemption. Next week, restoration. And redemption being the part centered on the gospel of Jesus and the climax of the entire plot line. Genesis 1 and 2 set the scene with this macro temple created by the triune community called God. In this garden, humanity was meant to flourish, cultivate, and multiply all in the physical presence of God in harmony together. Humanity and God in harmony, in peace, in unity, in oneness. It says in the scriptures that God walked with them in the garden, that he physically walked in the garden. Then in Genesis 3, a question of trust is proposed by this serpent, of whom they had authority over because of the original job description they were given by God, which was to rule over the earth. They had authority over the serpent. But with a desire to become like God, sin enters the picture. This is where the fall happens, which creates a chasm of presence. A chasm of presence as Adam and Eve leave the garden and death enters into the picture. Sin is the cause of the problem. But the great tragedy in this story is the separation of the presence of God from humanity, a chasm of relationship, a chasm of oneness. It's a lot like a pool. If a pool were to get contaminated, we might think that the contamination is the problem when in fact the great tragedy is that we don't get a chance to experience the joy of being in the water. That's the great tragedy. It isn't so much the contamination as it is the chasm of presence or the opportunity that we miss on being in the water. And from this point forward, the Lord seeks to restore his presence on earth. A few chapters to the right, the Lord then hand selects a family. He hand selects a family to try and reestablish his rule and reign on earth through humanity. He chooses a man by the name of Abram, who would eventually be called by his rapper name, Father Abraham. All right? Father Abraham, who had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Exactly. And throughout the entire Old Testament, beginning even with Abraham, 
we see the results of this chasm. We see the results of this fall. As a matter of fact, the fall isn't limited to a single event in the garden. When we see it permeate humanity throughout the 39 books of the Old Testament. It isn't limited simply to this event. We see it permeated all through the entire Old Testament. And for 2,000 years, from Abraham up to Jesus, Israel wandered, fell away, struggled, was defeated, oppressed, was rebellious, and exiled, all the while praying for a Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one. The Greek word we know very well is Christ. By the way, that's not Jesus' last name. That is a title given to him as anointed one to come and establish the kingdom of God and his presence on earth. A Davidic king from the line of David was what the Israelites were praying for. However, Israel didn't know that the coming Messiah or the anointed one would actually be divine. So that gives you, in five minutes, the entire Old Testament arc all the way up to this climactic moment in John chapter 1. Are you there in your Bible? One person. We are off to a fantastic start today. God is in our midst. Here we go. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Very poetic language here used by John the Apostle. And then we go to verse 14, a favorite verse among these first few. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when we first open John's gospel account and read the first few verses, we begin to have deja vu, do we not? We begin to think about what we just read back in Genesis Chapter 1, when we read in the beginning, it sounds very similar. That's because it is. It's the same three words that start the entire narrative. And when we know the larger story at play, we pick up on those three words because of the creation story. And we start remembering this opening line of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Here in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word Sounds very similar. However, what we don't realize is that John is setting us up for the climax or the turning point of the entire narrative, of the entire story, and sharing a new story within the larger story. It's a new creation narrative. A new story is being set into motion. The creation of humanity was the climax of Genesis chapter 1. However, God becoming human is the climax of the entire story. The creation of humanity was the the climactic moment of Genesis chapter 1, and yet God becoming human or becoming flesh is the climactic moment of the entire story that we see here in John chapter 1. 
Matter of fact, I would encourage you at some point this week, go back, read Genesis 1, and then read John chapter 1 at the same exact time, and you will see such parallel between the two. That's because a new creation story is coming into existence. John's literature, because you read this and go, wow, this sounds a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sounds a little deep, to be honest with you, you know? And we have to understand that John's literature, his writing, is best described as theography. Theography, okay? It is a biography emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. It is a biography of Jesus specifically focusing and emphasizing on the divinity of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels, and that's because there's a synergy between the three. They tell almost the same story, same events, same miracles, and same teachings, just in a different perspective. However, John has a specific focus on the divinity of Christ. This is essentially the first theology book of the Christian faith. In a couple of weeks from now, actually, we will begin a journey through the gospel according to Mark in just a couple of weeks. Really pumped about that. Get excited. It's fantastic. <laughs> Much like the word gospel has a cosmological weight to it, John introduces another powerful cosmological word. And it just so happens it is the word, word. <laughs> In John chapter 1, we see this word three times. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He being the word, the word being Jesus. Through him being Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Notice that it is capitalized. Word is capitalized. And that is because it is a proper noun. It is Jesus himself. The Greek word, we're gonna nerd out a little bit this morning, okay? Sometimes we do this on occasion. The Greek word is logos. Logos, not Legos. Logos. And it means word, speech, or statement. But what we see here is a connection, once again, to the Genesis moment, where all of life is spoken into existence. Creation itself is created through speech. Because in Genesis 1, we see this phrase over and over again, and God said. And God said, which should, which should tell us that our tongue is very powerful. It's the smallest muscle in the body and the most powerful. What you say matters. Think about it. When your spouse or your loved one says, I love you, it carries different weight than if I were to walk up to you and say, I love you. Think about when your boss says, you're fired. Carries different weight, does it not? Now, if your spouse says that to you, I don't know what to do about that. (laughs) 
Or I think about the Netflix show where they bring in all these amateur bakers and the phrase that, that this lady uses constantly, what's the show, nailed it? Where she says, you're done. I love that, you're done. Words carry weight as we've described before. They have meaning. And in the beginning, it is through speech that life is created. It is this logos. The logos was known as the source of all life. The source of all life. As we see here in John chapter one, through him all things were made. Him being the logos. Through the logos all things were made because life was spoken into existence. Not only that, not only is it a source of all life, but ancient pagan philosophers believe that the Logos was the meaning of all life as well. It was the organizing principle of all life. That deep yearning uh, for purpose in the gut of our soul for the human being that that, 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 that moment we found that, we found the logos, that that is the source of all life, and it is life itself. It is the meaning of all life. It was the fulfillment of that deep yearning and longing that we have as human beings. So the word is the source and meaning of life. It's the organizing principle of all life. Jesus was and is the logos. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the living word, capital W. He is the living logos. He is the source and meaning of all life. Jesus is the organizing principle of all life. Because in him, all things were created. And eventually, we will see Jesus give bold I am statements, one of which being, I am the resurrection and the life. The word is connected, joined, and attached to life itself. It is at the very core of life. Life was created in Genesis 1 by God, speaking it into existence, and we see those same three words in the beginning, mirrored in John chapter 1. A new creation story is being written, but is the reversal of the Genesis story, it is the reversal. There are two primary stories at play. There's the story of God, and there's the story of humanity. There's a paradigm for us to take a look at a visual, if you're a visual learner, which I am called the great reversal paradigm. In this paradigm, we see what happened in the garden. We see humankind, we see man, reaching, seeking to become like God. Humanity was in harmony, perfect union with God in the garden. And then they seek equality with God. And in seeking and reaching for equality with God, what happens? Fall happens. Death enters into the picture and the absence of presence and relationship. There is a chasm that is created in this attempt. However, what is being proposed to us here in John, what we're seeing taking place in this new creation story is the reversal effect of what happened in Genesis. It is creator God 
incarnating or in the flesh, becoming God in the flesh, entering into humanity. God becomes man, enters into the story. The author now becomes the protagonist. The author now becomes a character in the story. He enters into the story as a man, fully God and fully man, as we see in the text here in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And in that incarnation, Jesus then eventually going to the cross, and in that obedience and sacrifice, we then see resurrection, life, and presence once again. We see the reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That is the most beautiful picture of what's happening at large. It is the reversal of all things through Christ Jesus, and it ties the whole narrative together. So now when you read John and you now read Genesis, you don't go, what is the connection? I don't understand. I get all the animals and the birds. We got to have that somehow. But what's really going on? This is the picture that is being painted throughout the larger narrative of the scripture. This is the great reversal. The word became flesh. Jesus jumps into the story. Jesus jumps into the narrative. The word becomes the life. The king becomes Messiah. Lord becomes savior. Christ becomes rabbi or teacher. All to redeem, not simply your sin, but the sin and brokenness of the world and bring wholeness and completeness and unity and oneness to this world. The antithesis of sin Unity and oneness. You ever wonder what the antonym of sin is? It's unity. It's oneness. It's harmony. It's peace. It's presence. And Jesus brings that in himself when he enters in through the incarnation. God in the flesh. Jesus entering in the word, the logos, Entering in changes everything. Our entire faith hangs on this idea that Jesus himself is not only a Messiah, but he is also God himself. God incarnate. N.T. Wright has this quote where he says, his task, being Jesus, he believed was to bring the great story of Israel to its decisive climax, the long-range plan of God the Creator to rescue the world from evil and to put everything to rights at last was going to come true in him. God's plan to rescue the world from evil would be put into effect by evil doing its worst to the servant, that is, to Jesus himself, and thereby exhausting its power. What beautiful imagery of the power of evil being exhausted because of the pure, holy, perfect servant, God himself, Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, sin and evil were connected to disease and sickness. If you were chronically ill, it was said that you were cursed and God's judgment was upon you. That is why so many sick and lame people were found by healing or cleansing pools in the gospel accounts like the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. 
because it is where they could find cleansing and healing. Sickness was connected to sin. So sin was synonymous with physical disease and sickness, but the real sickness at play was the disease of the human heart, known as the human condition in need of redemption, or a fancy theological word is atonement. That is the sickness of the human soul. But because sin required sacrifice, a pure and holy sacrifice had to be made to exhaust all the power, to mend the presence chasm. Sin had to be defeated through both love and holiness. Both love and holiness. Because God is just, things had to be done right. But because God is also love, he sacrifices himself to make things right. Hello. We have another visual for you. This is probably a more familiar visual that we've kind of used the language redemption paradigm to describe. And it will go back again to the garden. Here we have presence in the garden. Full presence, heaven and earth overlap in the same space. God and humanity are in harmony together in the garden. God is physically walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine walking through your hood and there goes God, what up, G? What's up? Are you good? Your yard's looking good, Yahweh. Love it. Looking good. Looking, you know, tr- trim the bushes, okay? Trim the bushes. Adam, get on it. You know, whatever. We see perfect harmony in the garden. And then sin enters into the picture. And when sin enters into the picture, there is a chasm that is created. Once again, we've mentioned this already once before. This chasm where humanity is on one side and experiences death, God and his presence and life are on the other side, separated from humanity because now sin has entered into the picture. There is no longer oneness in relationship. Trust has been broken by humanity. And yet when Jesus enters into the picture through the cross, through the redemption of Jesus, his atonement, which atonement means at one. It means oneness. It means unity. Through this act of sacrifice, Jesus provides a bridge to his presence and to life everlasting. This is the most important visual you will ever see in your entire life because it's what gives life. It's what provides access to the presence of God. It is through the cross. And notice it's coming from the top down. It is God entering into the story. It is the great reversal. It's God becoming the protagonist, the author becoming the main character. Thomas Oden says, what God's holiness required, God's love provided on the cross. God's holiness required sacrifice It required a pure sacrifice, and for thousands of years before, it was animals that were being sacrificed for the purification of sin, and now it was the perfect Jesus. It was God himself. It was the Messiah sacrificing himself to make things just, 
to make things right, providing access once again to the presence of God for the redemption of sin, for wholeness, for oneness. The physician becomes the patient so that those who are truly sick might be healed. The doctor gets on the table free of sickness to take on the surgery and the pain required so that those who actually are sick might be healed and cured forever and ever and ever. It's Aslan on the stone table. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go YouTube it. That is the moment that we see with the cross entering into the picture. If that doesn't wake you up this morning, I don't really know what will. That should wake us up this morning. That we have access now to the presence of God into the atmosphere and space that we are meant to thrive, to flourish, to rule and to reign on this earth in harmony with God. And as we have said, the soundtrack of the story of Jesus, the gospel, is one of rescue, redemption, and restoration. But even more so, it is a soundtrack of healing. It is a soundtrack of healing. Sin is sickness. You and I were born with a human condition, a human disease that levels the playing field levels the playing field. Sin makes all things equal. We have a condition, chronic illness called sin, and we're in need of healing, and Christ in his work on the cross provides healing. It is the soundtrack of the gospel. Christ coming to redeem the world, though, isn't merely to provide a one-way ticket to heaven which Jordan's going to touch on next week when we look at restoration. Because some of us think that we're just going to be zapped from earth and go off to some ethereal place with naked babies that look like angels and playing harps all day long and singing the same song over and over and over again for thousands and thousands of years. And that's not the fullness of the biblical picture of what's to come. So just buckle your seatbelt and prepare for what is ahead in the new creation. Get excited. It's incredible. All right? It's not just a one-way ticket to heaven that Christ is providing or just to justify your past, but to provide healing and wholeness that permeate your present and give hope and life to your future. It isn't simply providing a one-way ticket to heaven, just justifying your past, but also to provide healing and wholeness that permeate your present and give hope and life to your future. Mark chapter two says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Oh, there's that word again, sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's Jesus' words. The sick can't live. So Jesus comes, provides redemption, paying the price of sin, giving his life, dying on that brutal cross so that you and I, when we believe and trust in him with everything, might be healed and experience true everlasting life, which everlasting, by the way, means now onward. Life doesn't begin the moment that you stop breathing in this physical earth. Life begins now. C.S. Lewis says that there is no such thing as mere mortals. We are all eternal beings. Our souls are eternal. 
Life begins now for those who trust in Jesus and trust in his redemptive work on the cross and trust that he is Lord and we submit to his lordship. John chapter one, verse four, we read this earlier. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. He came to give life and life to the full. Jesus is life itself. Jesus is the logos. Matter of fact, the word salvation We tend to think of it as the cleansing of sin, and that is true. But the etymology of the word is rooted in healing. Salve is a healing ointment. And salvation is the healing of a sick, cancered soul. Jordan shared this morning in the circle we have a friend of ours who we've known for quite a while. We grew up going to camp and stuff together. A guy loved the Lord, loved Jesus, um, graduated with a ministry degree, started doing camp ministry, and got married. And about six months after getting married, they um, diagnosed him with a tumor that had grown behind his eye and found that it was just 24 years old, been married six months. Just imagine. And we got word just about three or four days ago, that Grayson, now 25, passed away. Married a year and a half. Cancer. Life on earth taken from him. Now has a 24-year-old widow. Imagine. Imagine you wake up tomorrow and get a call. A lot of doctors report it's you were given. It's not going to be long. They started using words like incurable. Imagine. But I want to assure you something. Grayson's been set free of cancer because his soul has life everlasting. His soul has been healed and cured. And he's in a much better place than we are. He is in the midst of the fullness and the presence of God right now in paradise. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he is present with the Lord right now. But listen to me. Cancer is not what we should be afraid of. It's a diseased soul that screams absence from the presence of God. Absence from what we were created to flourish in. Sin, my friends, is a sickness that needs healing and salvation is that healing. But listen, it's both a moment and a journey. It is both a moment and a journey. I don't know if you've ever had surgery before, but let's say you've had surgery and things have been cured and you've been quote unquote fixed. Guess what happens now? The road to recovery. My wife's been in physical therapy for three and a half, almost four years. It's been fixed and cured. The tumor's been taken out. The disease is gone. The cancer is gone. But your body's weak. You need physical therapy. You got to go on the road to recovery. And honestly, friends, I think some of us in this space have been saved 
but we're still on the operating table. We haven't begun the journey of recovery. We've been justified by Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been cured. We've been healed. But we haven't gotten off of the, the operating table. We haven't begun the road to recovery. We haven't gotten in those crutches and began to walk. We haven't gotten in a wheelchair and begin to move down the walls or the, the aisles, excuse me, the aisles of the, the hospital. We're still on the operating table. Listen, salvation propels you off of the operating table. When you're cured, you get up and you walk. Jesus looks at you and says, what do you want? Do you want to get well? Do you want to live? Do you want life? Then live now. I've cured you. You're set free. I've brought atonement. I've brought redemption. I've brought oneness. I have cured you of this disease called sin. Now begin to live. Get off the operating table. And some of you are still on the operating table because you don't fully trust that you've been cured. You don't, you don't trust that Christ, the great physician, has healed the great sickness in your soul. But he has. And all you need to do is take a step off of that table. He looks at the lame man, Jesus does, and says, get up and walk. Can you imagine a lame man who's never been able to walk in his life and Jesus says, get up and walk. He's like, I don't even know how. I don't even know how to get up and walk. He looks at you today in the eyes and says, get up and live. Get up and live. Eric Mason, Dr. Eric Mason, says redemption is an event and a process. It's an event and a process. Not only is Christ redeeming the soul, he is also redeeming the space for his kingdom presence to take root. Because remember, we said that contamination isn't so much the problem. It's the cause of the problem. The great tragedy, though, is that we can't experience the joy of the water, the joy of being in the pool. John 1.14 said, Jesus made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling means to set up or fix one's tabernacle. Now we're going to nerd out some more. On the screen is a picture of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the portable temple where the presence of God would dwell as the Israelites were in the Exodus. Going into Egypt, this was a portable temple called a tabernacle. This is where the presence of God would dwell until eventually we see a physical temple is built by King Solomon in the Old Testament. And in the temple, the high priest could only go into the holiest of holies, into the presence of God, one day out of the year and had to go through a cleansing process or a ceremonial cleansing before entering into the holiest of holies. He had to be purified before entering into the holiest of holies in the temple. This was what was happening in the first century and the tabernacle was a portable temple because the presence of the Lord, listen, always dwells in the temple. The presence of the Lord always dwells in the temple, never outside of the temple, always inside the temple. And in Genesis chapter one, all of creation was a macro temple. 
macro temple. So in the word, Jesus, when life itself, when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, John is saying that the presence of God, the temple of God, was now in the physical presence of Jesus. Jesus was a living embodiment of the temple. The word presence actually can be translated face, meaning the presence of God actually is a face, and the face is Jesus, the incarnate one. N.T. Wright says Jesus was, as it were, a walking temple. A walking temple. However, when Jesus goes to the cross and the veil is torn, the veil to the holiest of holies, the, the, uh, the, the, the wall of sort, the barrier between humanity and the presence of God, when the veil is torn, when the price for redemption is paid, the presence of God is unleashed throughout the world and the bridge was dropped inviting all who believed in the presence all who trusted in this work of Christ leading up to a few weeks later at Pentecost where the spirit of God came and fell on the believers and the church was born as we know it and we are here today because of that moment we are here today because of that moment in history 2,000 years ago And in this moment, there became a new dwelling place of the presence, a new place for the presence to reside. Except this time, it wasn't a physical temple. It wasn't the physical Jesus. It was the spirit and is the spirit of Christ residing in the temple of the heart of those who repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. We, you and I, become many temples. If you have Christ in your life, you are a many temple of the presence of God. One amen. Thank you, there's two. Praise the Lord. Carrying the presence of God. Listen, the Israelites were begging to be in the presence of God. And we walk around like zombies. Honestly. We're existing but not living, friends. Because we don't fathom the idea and the reality of the temple of the heart. The presence dwelling in us. To give you guys again a a visual, this is the presence paradigm that gives an idea. Because of the redemptive work of Christ, this is the presence. In creation, we see an overlap of heaven and earth. The presence of God is in creation. It's a macro temple. Then the fall happens, and all throughout the Old Testament, the presence is only contained within the physical temple. And then Jesus enters into the picture, and there's an overlapping of heaven and earth. And in that overlapping is the body of Christ. It's the church. It's the many temples that you and I are. We are the overlapping space where the presence of God, the glory of the Lord, dwells only to eventually get into the restoration and the new creation, which will be a restored Eden. The new Jerusalem will come down. It will be this beautiful garden-like city where the presence of God now is all among us and heaven and earth are in the same space. Listen, friends, you and I aren't going to go off into some ethereal place called heaven if we are saved. This whole world we know will be actually restored and renewed and it will be called the new Jerusalem. The presence of God will be all around us and in our midst. 
And once again, we can say, what up, God? You good? It's good to see you today. And the gates will never be closed because there never will be pain, suffering, darkness, sin, or temptation. And the enemy will be bound up forever and ever and crushed because of Christ the King. Redemption is paying a price not only for sin, but most importantly for the return of life and presence. Heaven and earth no longer overlap in a physical temple or a physical Jesus, but in the church because the spirit of Jesus lives within us. I'm gonna get Brandon to come up and we're gonna, we're gonna close and we're gonna eventually come to the table, the communion table, where we partake in this grace that Christ has given us in remembrance of him. But in John 1.14, it says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, his magnificence, his excellence, and his greatness all around. And I want to ask you, I feel compelled to ask you, have you seen his glory? Because listen, friends, the veil has been torn, but I do believe that some yourself, it wasn't God who put it there, it was you, out of fear of the transformed life and the transformation of power that comes with the Spirit dwelling within us. Have you seen God's glory? Have you experienced the presence of God? Because I want you to see, experience, feel, and project his radiating glory all over this dark world. Let us be like Moses and pray emphatically, show me your glory. When was the last time you almost commanded something from God like that? A bold prayer with God results in bold prayers for humanity. Boldness with God results in boldness with humanity. Show me your glory. I want more of your presence. Now is the time. Pour out your spirit on us, Lord. Pour out your presence on us, Lord. We want to encounter your presence. We want to see the presence manifest itself among us because in the presence is when things change. The atmosphere shifts and overlapping is, is recognized. And some of you haven't experienced the presence in a long time, maybe never. And I want you to experience it because I don't want you to miss out on what happens in the presence of God. Yes, you are justified, but the Lord wants to pour out his spirit on you so that you might live. Not only live, but radiate his glory. Watch Manito says, I must first have the sense of God's possession of me before I can have the sense of his presence within me. You got to know that you're God's possession, son or daughter, prince and princess, before you can have a sense of his presence within you. Redemption is providing you the ability to experience the joy of being in the water once again. Not merely eliminating the contamination, but once again, enjoying 
and living and thriving and flourishing in the presence of living water. And friends, we can splash that water on all those who are around us. That's what God's called us to, to splash the presence of God all around this dark world where the kingdom can take root, where heaven and earth overlap in us, in our places of work, where we have fun, where we go out in our neighborhood, in our families, we splash the presence of God all around because we enjoy the water that we're in. We enjoy the living water. We enjoy the presence of God. But our deepest longing isn't so much to rid the pool of life from contamination, but our deepest longing is to be in the water. And today, I want to um, compel you at the depths of your being to long to be in the water, to long to be in the presence. Some of you have been longing to get rid of the contamination but don't know what to do once it's gone. You need to long to be in the water. Jesus provides redemption so that we might live, not merely in the future, but beginning now in his glory radiating presence. And as a reminder of not only his redemptive work, but also his presence among us, he invites us to the table. So I'm gonna get...